Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Do you like the new schedule? Hopefully, or I should say the old schedule. And uh, it is good to see all of you who came to the Sunday class this morning and enjoyed that. And some of you enjoyed the donuts maybe more than anything else, but hopefully you enjoyed the teaching as well. And, uh, and this time, I'm looking forward to Daniel chapter 9. Well, D.L. Moody told a story that I read about this past week of a mother, and she was very poor. She lived in Chicago, and she had one son. Uh, but this lady loved the Lord, and she loved to pray. And so every night before her son would go to bed, she would have her son hold her hand, and she would pray uh, with her son. And she'd pray for her son. She prayed that her son would grow up to love the Lord, to serve the Lord. And so every night, that's, that's what she would pray. She was very poor, but she considered uh, her situation, and she considered that God loved her. God cared for her. And so when she prayed, she would often pray that in her prayer, that God, thank you for your love for me. Thank you for how you've showed your kindness to us. Thank you for Jesus Christ. And then pray for her son. Tragically, one day the mother died, and the boy was left on his own to be cared for by someone else. And he, as he stood next to his mother's grave, he swore to himself that he would not be poor, that he would work hard, and he would be wealthy, and he would get himself out of this situation. And sure enough, 20 years later, this man found himself as a businessman in Chicago, and he was doing very well for himself. So one day he decided to go to his mother's grave and to have them exhume her remains and put them into a new tomb, into what he thought would be a proper burial, into a nice uh, graveyard, put a nice tombstone there for her. And as he stood next to this finished grave and the tombstone there, he thought about his mom and felt like he did something nice for her here. And he began to remember what his mom used to do with him every night, how she used to pray. And he thought to himself, you know, this, that was really a waste of time. You know, my mom prayed, but her prayers were never answered. You know, I'm a wealthy businessman, but he didn't love the Lord, he didn't follow the Lord. He's like, she wasted her time every night praying for me like that. And then he began to think about how his mother prayed and what she prayed for and how she prayed for him. And he walked home from that cemetery and walked home to his home. And as he began to walk home, he just began to think about his mother's prayers and the more he thought about his mother and what she prayed about, the more he was convicted in his own sin. And by the time he went to bed that night, he had knelt down next to his bed. And under the conviction of sin and seeing his need for Christ, he cried out for Christ to save him. What's interesting about that story is that woman prayed for him, and that request was not answered for 20 years. And God did it in a pretty unique way. That type of prayer of that mother, and the answer to prayer is a type of prayer we see here in Daniel chapter 9, and in a very similar way, the delay and the answer of God to the prayer is what we see in Daniel 9 as well. Daniel believed that God loved him. He believed he was in a covenant relationship with God. He confessed his sin and the sins of his people, and he asked God to restore them. And he believed because God loved them, him and Israel, 
that God would therefore delight to show them mercy. So he prayed for mercy. This plea of Daniel chapter 9 is a plea for God to show mercy to him and to his people. For almost 70 years, Daniel has been in exile in Babylon. Remember, in 605 BC, Daniel was taken away from Jerusalem into Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel made it clear at the very beginning of this book why he believed that God's people, Israel, were in Babylon. In Daniel 1, 9, Daniel said, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his, into King Nebuchadnezzar's hand. They were in exile because God was punishing Israel for their sins. And after Daniel was taken away, King Nebuchadnezzar came back a couple of times, but finally came back, returned to Jerusalem to try to subdue Judah. But eventually he leveled the city, killed thousands of people, and deported most people back to Babylon. So now Daniel is in his 80s. It's been almost 70 years since he was taken away. And he reads in the book of Jeremiah, particularly in Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29, that God promised that they would be punished and it would last for 70 years, but then God would deliver them if they turned to the Lord in humility, confession, and prayer. And so in this text of scripture, which we studied last week, we saw the, the prayers that the petitions that Daniel had to God. First of all, he prayed that God would restore Israel to their land, would restore Jerusalem to their capital in in the temple as well, but also that God would spiritually restore Israel. And in chapter nine, that has not happened yet. There's still a pile of rubble in Jerusalem. There's no temple in Jerusalem. And God's people are still distant from him. And so he prayed. And what's interesting is God answered his prayer and he sent the angel Gabriel to tell him the answer to the prayer. But the answer to the prayer actually isn't going to happen for years into the future when Daniel is dead and gone. So God sends the angel Gabriel to tell him how the prayer would be answered. So we're not going to walk through the entire prayer like we did last week. We're just going to do a little overview here. But what I I want to show you is this prayer is about God's mercy. It's a plea for God to be merciful to them. Look down in Daniel chapter 9 and look at verse 3. This is Daniel's testimony of what he did. Daniel 9 verse 3. Then I, Daniel, turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy. Now, you might have a translation that says supplications. This idea of mercy or supplication, supplications means to plead to God for favor. It's, it's the idea of one who stands in front of a judge. They stand in front of that judge as guilty, and they're asking for a pardon. They're asking for favor. They're asking for mercy. So he's saying, listen, God, I ask mercy for myself, for our people, In other words, we deserve judgment, but we're asking for mercy. And notice what he says. He says, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, 
who keeps covenant and steadfast love. You might have a translation that says mercy. It's a different Hebrew word. This is the word we read about the very beginning of our service. This is the service. This is the Hebrew word hesed, steadfast love, who keeps his covenant and his hesed, his steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. In other words, he's saying, listen, I believe that we as Israel and I as one of your children, I have a covenant relationship with God that he has decided to set his love upon me. Now, have you ever wondered why God did that? Why did God choose Israel? What was it about Israel that that he said, I'm going to make a covenant with you, even though you're rebellious, even though you're like this? Why why did God choose them? Well, I want to show you this. Would you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 7? Deuteronomy 7, God actually tells Israel why he chose them. I think it's important for us to understand this as we go into this prayer, because really the basis of this prayer is that God loves Daniel. God loves Israel. He loves his people. Why would God listen to Daniel? Why would God choose to show favor to Israel? What was so special about them? Well, look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 6. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7, 6. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you, that's speaking of Israel, are a people holy that's set apart. So I have set you apart, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord, that's Yahweh, that's a covenant name for God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. So that's, that's, that's it right there. God has looked at Israel and said, you are a treasure to me. I'm choosing to treasure you. Then look at verse 7. Why did God choose to treasure them. Look at verse 7. It's not because they were lovely. It's not because they were great. It wasn't like they were this great, amazing nation. He says, oh, look how powerful you are. I choose you. He didn't choose them because they were strong. He didn't choose them because they were amazing. No, he chose them because God chose to love them. He chose them because that's who God is. In fact, look at verse 8. You can see that. Verse 8 says, But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore. Why did God choose them? Because God chose to love them. It was nothing that they did. It was nothing about them that God said, Oh, those are amazing people. I'm going to choose them. No, God says, I choose to set my love on them. I'm going to make a covenant with them despite how they are. And then look at verse 9, Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord, Yahweh, Lord, your God is God, the faithful God. And then notice how this sounds so similar to to Daniel. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Go back with me to Daniel chapter 9. I believe Daniel took that idea right there, that idea that God chose to set his love on them, not based upon anything that they had done, not based upon anything about Israel, but because God is love. And so God is love, and therefore God loves to show mercy to people. So go back to Daniel chapter 9. I want to show you this stream really through this prayer of Daniel pleading for God based upon the love of God to have mercy for his people. Look at verse 9, Daniel 9, 9. To the Lord our God belongs what? Mercy and forgiveness. 
Look at verse 17. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and his pleas for, what is it? Mercy. Daniel 9, 18. For we do not, this is the middle of the verse, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. So that's it right there. He's not saying, hey, we're asking this based upon our goodness, our righteousness, but what? Because of your great mercy. Daniel prayed to God because he believed God loved him and God desired to show mercy to his people. This morning, what I want to do is I want to look at two ways in which God shows mercy to his people. Two ways in which God shows mercy to those whom he loves. And first of all, we're going to see because God loves, he answers the prayers of his people with mercy. Because God loves, he answers the prayers of his people with mercy. Daniel prayed for his people to be restored into a relationship with his Lord, his Yahweh. He prayed that Israel be restored into a relationship with Yahweh and restored to the land of Israel. Look at verse 20. This begins the text of scripture we're going to look at here this morning. Daniel 9.20 says, While I was speaking, so he's done praying, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, which is Jerusalem. Let's stop right there and think about this. Who was Daniel praying for? He was praying for himself, but he was praying for Israel, and he was praying for Jerusalem, the holy hill, Jerusalem. And the Bible says that while he was praying, in the midst of his prayer, something amazing took place. I want you to imagine Daniel praying, right? He was praying in the afternoon during the time of the evening sacrifice. We'll learn that in just a moment. He would have been on his knees praying towards Jerusalem, as we see in Daniel chapter 6. He had sackcloth and ashes on him. He was crying out to God. He's pleading to God for mercy. And then into the room comes an angel. That would be pretty shocking, wouldn't it? Can you imagine that? I mean, here he is crying out to God, and the angel Gabriel stands before him. Now, he has actually seen the angel Gabriel before. He saw him in a vision, but now this is in person, right? It's like he went from Zoom to in person. <laughs> and here is an angel standing before him. Look at verse 21. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now that's interesting because the sacrifices in Jerusalem haven't taken place for over 50 years. So why is Daniel praying at the time of evening sacrifice? Well, here Daniel is still remembering God's way of atonement is through sacrifice. And so at this time, he's praying to the Lord his God. Look at verse 22. He, that is Gabriel, made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly 
loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Why did Gabriel come to Daniel? What does it say there in verse 22? At the end, it says, to give him insight and understanding. Gabriel was sent to tell Daniel that his prayers were going to be answered and to help him understand how they were going to be answered. How would God fulfill his promises to Israel? He was going to give them insight and understanding. How would God restore them back to the land? How would he spiritually restore them? And notice right when Daniel started to pray, at the very beginning of his prayer, God sent Gabriel to Daniel. Look at verse 23. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word, that's the decree of God, a word went out. Now, don't miss that right there. That's amazing to think about. Daniel prayed, and right when he started praying, God responded. You ever pray, and you're like, okay, how long has it got to be until like, God will hear this request? Daniel prayed, and right away, God responded. I don't know about you, but that concept boggles my mind. Think about that. Here you have God, infinite God, sovereign God, the ancient of days. He stands outside of time and space, right? He stands outside of all matter. He's apart from his creation. Yet, what's amazing is he listens to our prayers within time, within space, and he responds. Like, have you, have you ever just sat there and thought about that? That, that should, like, blow your, your mind. Like, it just can't even comprehend that. When we read of someone praying like this and God responding, we always need to remember that God is not depending on our prayers, right? It's not like he's upstairs, you know, not upstairs in heaven, and he's going, hmm, let's see here, What's, what am I going to do next? Oh, this person's praying? Okay, that's what I think I'll do. It's not like God is, is waiting around for you to pray to figure out what he's going to do next. But in a way we can't understand, really, God before time, before creation, God had his eternal decrees put in place. So God has his eternal decrees before creation, yet as we pray according to the word of God, he uses our prayer as a vehicle to fulfill his providential plans. Let me say that one more time. God has his eternal decrees decided before creation, Yet, as we pray according to the word of God, he uses our prayers as a vehicle to fulfill his providential plans. And so here's the amazing thing. Church, God invites us, he invites you and me into his throne room to pray for his will to be done. And as we pray, he answers in real time and we get to be a part of his eternal decrees. That's amazing to consider. I think about Ephesians 6, 17 through, should be 18. Take the sword of the Spirit. What's the sword of the Spirit? Which is the word of God. So we take God's word, praying at all times in the Spirit. So we take God's word. We pray in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. That's the idea of mercy to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So we take the word of God and we go to God in prayer. 
And God invites us to participate in his providence. We can pray to God and be a part of the providential work of God in this world. Isn't that amazing to think about? Now, why would that happen? Why would God allow us to be a part of something like that? I mean, what is it about you that God would allow that to happen? Well, there's nothing about you, right? There's no, you don't have anything close to coming to the mind of God, right? There's nothing about us. It's actually about God. What is it about God? It's that God loves us. Why would God include us in on that? Because God loves you. In fact, look at verse 23. Look at the end of verse 23. He gives the reason here. Why would God listen to him and answer his requests? For you are greatly loved. In fact, look in chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. Look at chapter 10. Here another angelic being comes to him. Could be Gabriel. And he says the same thing to Daniel. Daniel 10, 11 says, And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved. Look at verse 12. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And then listen to this. I have come because of your words. So God communicated to Daniel that I love you. And that angelic being had come because he prayed, Daniel prayed. The Hebrew word there for greatly loved is the same in Daniel 10, 11, and Daniel 9, 23. It's the idea of something that you delight in, something or someone that you have chosen to set your love upon. I think about yesterday we were doing some errands around town and we were trying to decide where we were going to go eat. So I asked my kids, I said, where do you guys want to eat today and for lunch? And so... They had some different ideas out there. And, you know, when I was driving down the street, I thought about there's other people that are walking around. We ended up going into Chick-fil-A, and we saw some other kids around there. Why didn't I ask those other children where they wanted to eat? Why didn't I pay for all of them to eat? What was, what was special about my children? What is it? I love them, right? I love them. I wanted them to be a part of it. Like, what do you guys want to eat? Oh, Chick-fil-A. I kind of already thought that anyways. But what do you want to eat? Chick-fil-A. Which is interesting because on Saturdays it used to be really filled and now there's hardly anyone in there anymore. So we had the whole place to ourselves. But I, I love my children. And so I have included them in on that decision and they were a part of that. God loved Daniel. He treated Daniel as one who was special. He delighted in Daniel. And why is that? Because that's who God is. God is love. Remember, it's not because of anything Daniel did. Look at verse 18. Go back to verse 18 of Daniel 9. Daniel 9, 18. Daniel did not earn God's love. Right? It's, a lot of people think that way. I, I, gotta, I gotta earn God's love. No, Daniel did not earn it through merit or righteousness. In verse 18, the Bible says, Daniel says, we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but why? Because of your mercy. You give us something we don't deserve. God loved Daniel because that's who God is. I think I have another scripture, one of my favorite scriptures when we think about prayer, that we are to cast our anxieties, our cares upon him. That's prayer. 
why do we do that? Why do we pray to God? Why do we cast our cares upon him? Why do we take the things that are burdening us and we say, Lord, no, no, here you go, you have it. Why is that? Because what? He cares for us. Have you ever just pondered that right there? God cares for you? I mean, here we are like these walking pieces of flesh, right? I mean, what are we? We're nothing. And God cares for our soul? God cares for us? God loves. And that's why God shows mercy. Sometimes I'm in my office studying and, uh, you know, I'm focused on something, reading something or doing something or sometimes even meeting with someone and I see this little seven-year-old boy. Usually he's got something like strapped around his head and like a sword in his back like this or maybe some, you know, plastic guns on him and he's running around the property and he comes up to my window and he looks in there. He like knocks on the window or maybe he comes to my door and he tries to pop it open. Hey, daddy, you in here? And I'm pretty busy. I got some things going on. I'm usually in the middle of something. But do you know what I almost always do? I almost always invite him in to talk to him. And do you know why that is? Because who can resist that little cute face, right? Big smile. What are you doing in here, Daddy? You know? It's because I love him. And I delight to hear from him. God loves his people. And he delights to hear from them. And we can have confidence as we go to the Lord. If you are in Christ, if you are a child of God, you can have confidence as you go to the Lord in prayer. Hebrews 4, 16 says that we can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'm convinced that many times we don't pray to the Lord because we're truly not convinced that God loves us. I mean, here Daniel was convinced that he was in a covenant relationship with God and God loved him and God therefore wanted to show mercy to him and his people. He rested in the love of God. And we sang some songs this morning about God's love. And I I think many times people can just go through songs like that and say, oh yeah, God loves me. But we need to consider what that means. God loves, he cares for you. Sometimes when I teach children. I take John 3.16 and I have them put their name in there. For God so loved Ben. And sometimes it helps us to remember that we're not just talking about everyone else out there. God has a special love for you. And maybe you're going through some things this week. You're going through some different trials or difficulties. Listen, friend, in Christ, God loves you. Let's rest in that. Let's cry out to him for mercy because of that. Because God loves, he answers with mercy. Because God loves, also, he fulfills his promises of mercy. Because God loves, he fulfills his promises of mercy. The book of Daniel can really be divided into two parts. You have, you have chapters 2 through 7, those are written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of that part of the Gentile world. And then chapters 1 through, chapters one, chapter 1, then chapters 8 through 12 are written in Hebrew. So there's, there's two parts of the book of Daniel. One written in Aramaic, the language of the Gentiles. And then one, one written in Hebrew, the language of the Jewish people, God's people. And so Daniel 9 is written in, in Hebrew. So I think Daniel 9 is a great example of of why the book is divided like this. Daniel was praying 
for Israel to be restored. He was praying for Israel. He was praying for Jerusalem to be restored. In fact, we saw that in verse 20, right? For my people Israel, for the holy hill of my God, that is Jerusalem. So look at verse 24. What we're going to see in verse 24 through the end is God's work through his people and through his city, Jerusalem. So look at verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people. So who is that? That's Israel. And your holy city. What's that? That's Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Do you got that one? Does everyone understand what that's talking about? Well, might not. But let's hold on and let's see if we can figure it out. Seventy weeks literally means seventy sevens. The word week refers to a unit of seven. In the context here, that unit of seven is seven years. So if you do the math, 70 times seven years. What is that? 490. Good job. Some of you are doing a great job on your math out there. Some of us are a little slow. That's 490 years. So you could literally say it like this in verse 24. 490 years are decreed about your people and your city. So again, who are the decrees for? It's for God's people and Jerusalem, uh, for Israel and for God's city, Jerusalem. And it's so important for us to understand this because this is not speaking about the church. It's not speaking about Gentile nations. If you take an approach to scripture that has a hermeneutic that is studying the scripture with a, with a, um, with a historical, grammatical, normal interpretation of scripture, then you're going to want to look at this in the context of understanding that God is speaking about his people Israel and is speaking about Jerusalem. So God is not yet finished with him. And so that's what he's saying here. God is going to answer his request and show him how he's going to do that. So look at verse 24. Verse 24 sets out six things that God would accomplish through Israel in Jerusalem at the end, by the end of 490 years. So verse 24 is like an overview of saying, by the end of 490 years, this is what God will do to will accomplish through Israel and Jerusalem. Then in verses 25 and 27, he breaks down those 490 years and prophesies how God would work through Israel during those different periods of time. And just to make it easy for you, I made my own chart up here. And hopefully this can kind of help us as we walk through this, understand what he is talking about. It's a timeline that helps us understand these 490 years. So first there's going to be 49 years. Then we're going to see 434 years. And then we're going to see a gap. And then we're going to see seven years. And the totality of those three sets of years is 490 years. And you might be confused by that, but hopefully in a second you'll see that. So look at verse 24. Let's just talk about this first. At the end of 490 years, after God is done working through Israel to accomplish his purposes, what will he accomplish? That's what verse 24 tells us. Six things God will accomplish through Israel by the end of 490 years. He says, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, 
to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, what's he talking about with this? Well, let's just go through some of them. To finish the transgression. This refers to the sin of Israel's apostasy, right? That's what he's praying for. He's saying, we, we've, we've come away from you. We've broken your law. Like, we are your people, and we have rejected you and your covenant. So, what he's talking about here, he's just talking about the sin of Israel's apostasy against the Lord. So the promise here is at the end of 490 years, Israel will no longer be unreconciled to God. So when will that take place? Like, when will this take place? Let me ask this question. Has that happened yet? Well, the answer is no, it hasn't happened. We're just going to pop up some of these on the screen. If you want to write, write these down, you can. Romans eleven twenty five. Paul speaks of this. He says, I want you to know, or I want you to be, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. In other words, some of Israel has come to Christ, right? Paul the apostle came to Christ. He was Jewish, right? So we have some who came to Christ, but some who have a hard heart towards him, towards the Messiah, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So there's this period of time that's going to end, and then something else is going to happen. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, that's the Messiah. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So this deliverer is the Messiah. Who's the Messiah? Jesus. He comes from Zion. And what's Zion? That's Jerusalem. And he will banish all ungodliness from Jacob. So he's speaking about God's special people. So there's a future day when Jesus the Messiah will save the remnant of Jerusalem, or of Israel, the remnant of Israel. And when will this take place? This takes place at the second coming of Jesus. How about the next one? To put an end to sin. This is the promise that the world will be rid of sin. And Jesus' first coming, he died to put an end to sin. So there's one aspect of that, right? He died to put an end to the sin that is personally ruling over our hearts and our lives. However, we can't say in our world that sin is no more, right? I mean, obviously, sin is still abounding in our world. So the promise to put an end to sin, when will that take place? When will God banish sin from this world? It's after the second coming of Christ. At the second coming of Christ... He will put an end to sin. How about to atone for iniquity? To atone means to cover. This is the Old Testament picture of God covering our sins with a sacrifice. And of course, this is the promise that Jesus the Messiah would come and be the atonement for our sins. This was in Jesus' first coming. But what's interesting as well is the New Testament, and the Old Testament as well, but the New Testament teaches that the full realization of the atonement will take place at the second coming of Christ. The full realization of the atonement will take place at the second coming of Christ. Now, hopefully, I'm, I'm probably losing some of you, but stay with me here. Acts, Acts 3, 19 through 21, Peter preached, and Peter said this, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. So there can be atonement, so you can have your sins covered that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ, that's the Messiah, Jesus Christ, appointed for you, 
Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, that's what he's talking about in Daniel, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. In other words, he's saying, listen, that come to Christ and have your sins blotted out, receive the atonement of Christ, so that the full, at the second coming of Christ, the full realization of the atonement can take place and he can restore all things. How about the next one? To bring in everlasting righteousness. In Jesus' first coming, he provided righteousness through his death and through the spirit of God justifying the sinner. But here, this, just, this righteousness is more than just justification. In fact, literally, you could translate this to bring righteousness of the ages. So this is Christ bringing righteousness to the earth. It's actually Christ bringing righteousness to the earth. And when will that happen? When will Christ bring righteousness to the earth and rule as the righteous Lord? Again, let's flip up another passage here. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Who's that righteous branch? That's Jesus the Messiah. When did that happen? Right? Bethlehem, right. And he came in the first coming of Jesus Christ. He shall reign as king and deal wisely. So he is the king of kings, right? He is the king right now. And shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now that's an interesting little phrase right there, right? So he is at the right hand of God. He's not in the land right now. But he's going to actually come as a king and execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved. Has that taken place yet? Well, some people have been saved, but not the nation of Judah. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord. Yahweh, Jesus Christ, Yahweh is our righteousness. So has the righteous branch come? Yes, that's his first coming. Has he saved Judah? Has he saved Israel? Is is he actually causing them to dwell safely in the land because he's ruling in righteousness in the land? The answer is no. So when will that happen? When will he rule in the land in righteousness? Well, if we, if we believe in interpreting scriptural, scripture in a normal grammatical historical hermeneutic, that we're going to look at that and we're going to say, that's got to happen at some point. God fulfills his promises. So that's in the future at the second coming of Christ. How about the next one? To seal both vision and prophet. This means that all revelation, all prophecies are fulfilled. There's no more need for visions. There's no more need for prophets. Why? Because the prophet, Christ, the Messiah himself, is with us. So there's no more need for revelation. We have the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the revelation of God. So when will that take place? At the second coming of Jesus Christ. And to anoint the most holy place. The most holy place refers to the holy of holies, So this is a promise of a rebuilt temple with a holy of holies. So here's the whole summation of that. These six things will be accomplished at the end of 490 years in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So that's verse 24. Look at verse 25. So let's break down those years and try to to understand those years together. What What happens during those 490 years? Verse 25 he tells us, and what I'm going to do now is I'm actually going to read in the NASB 
the ESV translators, for whatever reason, didn't take a very literal approach with this. So when they translated this, they didn't do a very good job of translating verse 25. I don't know why, but the NASB does really a better job of translating the Hebrew here. So I'm just going to read verse 25 in the NASB. So you are to know and understand that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks in 62 weeks. It will be built again with streets and moat, even in times of distress. Did everyone get that one? Okay, we'll have to go through and figure it out here. So remember, these weeks are seven years. So you have seven times seven is what? 49 years. So it's going to be first 49 years, then another set of 62 weeks or 62 sevens. So 62 times seven equals, you can cheat, look up here, 434 years. Thank you, mathematicians out there. What does, what's the total of 49 plus 434? Does anyone know? 483, good job. Did you know that because of math or you know your prophecy? I don't know. Okay. Daniel heard this prophecy in 538 BC. And the restoration of the temple actually would be decreed next year. So the next year after this, in 537, King Cyrus would decree that some Jews could go back to Jerusalem and they could actually start rebuilding the temple. But what is the decree in verse 25? You see in verse 25, he says, the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. What is that decree? Is it that decree by King Cyrus? Well, King Cyrus actually decreed that the temple should be rebuilt. I believe it's actually the decree of Artaxerxes in uh, March 5th, 444 BC. There's, there's two different really dates people kind of go between. There's one that Artaxerxes had a decree to Ezra, and uh, some people go with that one. And I, for various reasons, believe that this is the correct one. And the reason why is because King Artaxerxes permitted Nehemiah to go and rebuild the walls. The actual decree to rebuild Jerusalem was given by King Artaxerxes to Nehemiah. And so to fulfill his request to have Jerusalem be rebuilt and God's promise here that there would be, in verse 25, he says, the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild what? Jerusalem. So... 444 B.C. So this is the answer to Daniel's prayer. And after the completion of this decree, Jerusalem had a wall and a temple, and it would be complete. So what's interesting is if you start in 44 B.C. and you add 483 years, you get 33 A.D. Now some of you look at that and you go, ah, I know math. That's not getting me to 33 AD. Well, you have to use the, the Jewish calendar. And what was the Jewish calendar? It was the lunar calendar, 360 days. And so there's a lot of math that goes into that. But if you use the, the lunar calendar, it gets you to 33 AD. What happened in 33 AD? Does anybody know? Jesus the Messiah was crucified. So think about that. The book of Daniel, hundreds of years before Christ came to be born to this world, predicted the exact timing of the Messiah's coming. This is not some crazy theory, right? This is not a crazy theory. This is actually what the Bible teaches. 
This is amazing. I mean, how do you think the Magi knew to come at that time to see that baby, the king of the Jews? I mean, the Magi, they were Persian wise men who would have read the writings of Daniel. They would have calculated some of these numbers like Daniel did as well. But not only did Daniel predict the timing of Messiah, but also the work of Messiah. Look at verse 26. Verse 26, he says, And after the 62 weeks, so that's the 434 years, and then you add the previous 49, right? So then you get 483 years. So after 483 years, and notice he says after. So 483 years, and then boom, after that, this will happen. And anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. This is one of the greatest prophecies of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. To cut off indicates a violent death. It's often used in the Old Testament to describe a criminal being executed. So he says the anointed one shall be cut off. He'll be executed like a criminal and then he shall have nothing. I mean, think about it. If someone dies, they have nothing anyways, right? So this is something unique. Like it's not a, that's not a, like a surprise. If someone's cut off, they're, they're killed as a criminal. They have nothing, obviously. So something's different about this. What is different about this? Well, when Jesus died, he was cut off and he had nothing in that. Everyone rejected him. He was left alone on that cross. Israel rejected him. John 1 11 says he came to his own. He came to the Jewish people. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. The disciples rejected him. His creation rejected him, right? His humanity around him killed him. Even his own father in heaven rejected him, pouring out his wrath for our sin upon Jesus. The father forsook him. Jesus was left on that cross with nothing. With nothing but the wrath of God for sin. And that right there, friend, right there is the definition of hell. Being left with nothing but yourself. And the wrath of God for sin. And so Jesus was cut off. He was left with nothing. And here's a good question. Why would Jesus do that? Why would God the Father do that? Why would he cause the anointed one, the Messiah, to be cut off and have nothing? The Bible tells us, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How many of us know that verse We read it and we go, oh, yep, that's the verse right there. Why was he cut off and left with nothing? Why did he go through hell on the cross? Because God loves you. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus experienced hell so you would not have to. It's because of the love of God that Jesus, the Messiah, came. 
H.A. Ironside told a story of when he was a young boy and he was in a, a children's meeting and there was a missionary that came in. He was a missionary to Africa. Of course, when you are going to speak to boys and girls and you're a missionary, you're going to tell all the amazing stories, especially if you come from Africa. And so he was going to tell all these stories to these boys and so they're all excited about this. And so he said as a young boy, he sat in the front row there and he was ready for this story and he was ready to hear about the, the tribal people over there in Africa and all the crazy things they do over there and the shrunken heads and all that kind of stuff. And, and so this missionary got up and he says, boys, I want to tell you what I teach the people in Africa. And so they're all in their seats and they're ready for this. The missionary says, I teach them the same thing I teach you. Some of the boys got confused and he says, I teach them that God loves to save naughty boys like you. <laughs> and he went on to tell them, God is not waiting for you to be good so he can love you. God loves sinners and invites them to repent and believe and receive his mercy. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's promise to us is that he will pour out his mercy upon us because he loves us. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Isn't that amazing in Daniel that we see not only the timing, but also the work of the Messiah? Look in verse 26. So after those 483 years, after that time, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come. Now let's stop right there. Who are we talking about? The people of the prince who is to come. Who's the prince who is to come? Well, this is the, the person we saw in Daniel chapter 7, the little horn. This is the Antichrist. Remember, he is a part of another part of the Roman Empire. But notice it doesn't say that he, this Antichrist, is the one to destroy Jerusalem and to destroy the sanctuary. But it says the people... Look at verse 26. He says, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come, that's the city and the sanctuary, shall come with a flood. To the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So when did this take place? And this took place in 70 AD. So this is a prophecy that the temple once again would be destroyed as well as the city would be leveled. And Titus did this in 70 AD when he came through and he demolished the temple in Jerusalem. So everything in verse 25 and 26 from our viewpoint has already taken place. For Daniel, it was future. For us, it's in the past. But in verse 27, we see events that have not taken place for us. From our side of history, these things have not taken place. So you look at verse 27, there are events in there that have not taken place. They're, they're still future. So verse 27, these events take place within this week, within this last week. Remember, a week is seven years. So this, this last verse here speaks of this seven years, and what will take place in that, what people call the 70th week of Daniel. In other words, the last seven years of that 490 years. So let's just think about this. If verse 26, verse 25 and 26, if those things have already taken place from our side of history, and in verse 27, there are things that have not taken place yet, then what do we have to conclude? That there's something between verse 26 and verse 27. 
a little, uh, a little while ago, we went down to San Diego, and I uh, told someone it took us about three and a half hours to come back from San Diego. Is that a pretty good time, three and a half hours? That's not bad, right? I think it's supposed to take like two hours and 45 minutes. Now, when I say to you that it took us three hours, three and a half hours to come back, what you recognize is I'm talking about driving, right? I mean, we might have stopped at a store somewhere, or maybe we stopped at In-N-Out, ate for an hour or whatever, and you recognize that there could be gaps in there. I'm not talking about those gaps. I'm just talking about the drive time, right? That's what you see here in this text, right? There's a, there's a gap in here. He's not talking about that, what's taking place in that gap. So what we see between verse 26 and 27 is there's a gap in history. Why is that? Well, because he's talking about how God's using Jerusalem and Israel to fulfill his purposes. The gap there is the gap of the time of the Gentiles or the church age, which we're in right now. So it makes sense. I mean, this is the part of the the scripture where he's speaking about the Jewish people and how God's going to use the Jewish people. He's answering Daniel about how God's going to fulfill his promises to the Jewish people. So it makes sense he wouldn't stop and talk about that because it's not, he's not dealing with that. So verse 27 deals with future, the future of how God will deal with Israel for the next seven years. And I'm almost done here. So those, some of you that are like, I'm so lost, we're going to wrap it up here soon. Don't worry. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 is still future. And he, and who is that? That's the Antichrist, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Remember that week is seven years. So he's going to make a covenant for seven years and for half of the week. So what's half of seven? Three and a half. So three and a half years into this covenant, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offerings. So, so think about it this way. There's there's some kind of sacrifice and offerings taking place. Now, this gets confusing because it's like, okay, you had the, the temple for Solomon. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed that. Then you have Daniel's day. It's a big hut. It's a big heap of rubble. But God actually allows them to rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem. And then you got Jesus' day. And after he dies and was resurrected and goes to heaven, 70 AD, the temple in that Jerusalem is destroyed. And now there's another temple. And now there's another sacrifice that takes place. So So what do we conclude from this? Well, there must be some type of future time where people can sacrifice in some type of temple. So that's what we see here. He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So we can conclude that at some point in the future, there will be return of sacrifices in Jerusalem. Now, I don't have time to go through different texts and show you this. You can see this as you study um, different texts in the Old Testament and New Testament. But let's just finish this up. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, and that's the Antichrist, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So according to verse 27, the Antichrist will make peace with Israel, have this covenant, and then for th- and three and a half years into this covenant, they are gonna, he's going to break this covenant. He's going to cause it to be desolate. He's going to cause, he's going to, what the scriptures speak of, the abomination of desolation. And I don't have time to get into these texts. You can write this down, Matthew 24, 15. Jesus talked about the abomination of desolation. Paul talked about it in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. You can read about it there. But here the Antichrist will defile the temple. And then finally, the decreed end is poured out in the desolator. And that's the second coming of Christ. Christ comes back. He judges the nations and the Antichrist, and he rules as the sovereign 
Messiah. And at that, the end of that, after those 490 years of God working through Israel, Messiah returns. And that's what we call the second coming of Jesus Christ. Well, there you go. There's our fly-through of prophecy. Hopefully you enjoyed that. And I had someone this morning that told me, man, I wish we could spend more time on this. But I said, I do too, but we don't have time this morning. Let me just end with a few applications. First of all, let's think about this. God's word is accurate and true. I don't know if you've ever heard this kind of stuff before, particularly the fact that the timing of the Messiah has been predicted in Daniel and actually how Christ would die was predicted in Daniel. But when you read that, like, you should have confidence in God's word. Like, this is true. A lot of people come after God. Oh, there's so many errors in God's word. There's so many things that aren't true. Like, hello, that's amazing right there, right? That should give you confidence in God's word. You can trust the word of God. And then the second thing I think would be good for us to think about is that God, God loves you. Christian, those in Christ, he loves you. He loves you. I mean, here's Daniel praying to God, and he prayed in the confidence that God loved him. And if you're in Christ, you're in the new covenant, God loves you. We need to pray in that confidence. And if you're without Christ, God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die for you. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Amen? God loves us, and he sent Jesus to go through hell for us so that we could be in heaven with him. Let's pray.